Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers. Bill Morris's rich and thrilling new novel, Motor City Burning, is set amid the history of one of America's most tortured and fascinating cities. The two protagonists in Bill's new work, Frank Doyle and Willie Bledsoe, struggle with Detroit's deep racial divide, with revenge and forgiveness, and with the realization that justice is rarely attainable and rarely just. This thrilling new novel from Bill Morris is set amidst the chaos of the Detroit race riots in 1967 and the serenity of opening day in 1968. And in my recent interview with Bill Morris, I asked about his background in the Motor City, asked how long he spent living in Detroit. Well, I was born actually in D.C., Washington, D.C. My dad was a, a reporter with the Washington Post, and I was born in 52 there. And literally, when I was a few weeks old, barely dry, they put me in the back of their new 52 Ford and drove to Detroit because my dad had taken a job at Ford Motor Company. They were beefing up their PR department for the 53. 1953 was the 50th anniversary of Ford. So we lived on the west side on LaSalle Street, uh, not far from Davis and not far from where the riot broke out uh, in 67. And we lived there for about the first five or six years of my life. And then we moved to Southfield Road out in Birmingham, where I ended up going to Catholic schools out there. So that was, and then uh, we lived in Detroit till 69, and my dad took a job with Carrier Air, and we left town. So I lived here from 52 to 69, which I think of as kind of like the golden years of Detroit, uh, the, when it was really happening. And, uh, you know, there was some bad things, too. The, the riot of 67, and then the Tigers' great season of 68, and then we left. Now, is Motor City burning your first novel that's set in the Motor City? Well, Detroit? no, actually, it's my second one set in this. My third novel, but the second one in in Detroit. The first one, Motor City, no burning in that one. It was Motor City in 1954. Uh, I had a 54 Buick, and I became fascinated with the history of that car and did a story about the year 1954 in the auto business in Detroit. And it was a boom year. Buick was in a big race with Plymouth for number three behind Ford and Chevy. And I told the story about the, the sort of the, the auto industry in the year 1954, which was one of its bumper years. And that was that was Motor City, my first novel. And then uh, my second one was set in Southeast Asia, All Souls Day. And now Motor City Burning, I'm back in Detroit. 1954, a pivotal year for me because that's the year I was born. And, you know, I look at the history and I'm a rock and roll baby. And my God, you know, 1954 was pretty important. That's when Elvis Presley made some of his uh, essential recordings back in the day. You oh, know, yeah. We, the, the, novel, the novel even visits uh, Memphis briefly at, at the Sun Studios uh, because he did his, oh, Marilyn Monroe, the scene on the, the, the subway grate where her skirt blew up. That was 1954. Uh, amazing stuff happened in that year, which I got into when I researched that novel. The H-bomb blew up. I mean, it was it was a wild 1954. It was a magical year for me. Motor City Burning begins uh, very evocatively on Plum Street. And for those who may not go as far back as you and me, Bill, this this was the hippest place in Detroit for me in the 1960s. As this was the center of the counterculture back in the 1960s. Take us to the uh, the start of this novel and give us, if you would, a little bit of a synopsis of what happens here okay. in your new book. Well, our, the protagonist is a guy named Willie Bledsoe. He's a young black guy up from Alabama. Um, he was a v very active in the early civil rights movement. He was with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It was a freedom rider in the buses in the South. And in the summer of 1964, the so-called Freedom Summer, 
was sort of the end of his time in the movement. That was 50 years ago this summer, hard to believe, but um, that's when he became disillusioned, and he winds up coming to Detroit with his brother, who's a, a Vietnam veteran, with a trunkload of guns, which they sell in Detroit in uh, the spring of 67, just before the riot broke out. And now, as the, as the novel opens, it's opening day of the 1968 baseball season. The Red Sox are in town to play the Tigers, and Willie's on his way to Tiger Stadium. And he parks his car on Plum Street, as you mentioned, in Corktown. Um, and uh, there, there was a, a, a house there. His uncle had told him he, his car would be safe there. He had a beautiful uh, 54 Buick. And here's how I described the house. Uh, and there it was now, right side, halfway down the block, painted up like a bad acid trip. Orange walls, purple trim, some of the windows missing and others cracked and milky. The front door covered by an American flag with a peace symbol on the blue field where the 50 stars were supposed to be. A kid, a kid with stringy blonde hair halfway down his back was waving cars onto the backyard. <laughs> uh, yes. I've seen, I've lived and uh, seen that scene down there before. Oh, yeah. Uh. So anyhow, he's on his way to Tiger Stadium. Uh, get, we we want to hear a little bit about Tiger Stadium yes. back in the day? Please, okay, so it's yes. opening day. And Willie uh, walks across Trumbull. He looks up. Uh, he looks up and uh, he sees this great sooty iceberg as Tiger Stadium. As Willie waited in line at the ticket window, new smells came to him, windborne ash and cinders from the city's smokestacks, a vaguely briny smell off the river, diesel exhaust from idling buses. And then, after he paid 50 cents for a bleacher seat and began ascending the switchbacks that carried fans from the street to the upper deck, he realized he was climbing into a symphony of smells, a single, complex aroma that had been composing itself since the first baseball game was played 56 Aprils ago in this... America's oldest big league ballpark. It was equal parts mustard, sweat, stale beer, urine, popcorn, wet wool, vomit, perfume, cigar smoke, and boiled pork. It was that musty smell iron gives off after it has stood in one place through 56 scorching summers and 56 arctic winters and an unknowable number of of uh, sleet storms and baseball games and football games, halftime pageants and fistfights and pennant drives, after it has absorbed the shuffling of millions of pairs of feet, heard the guttural animal roar of cheers and boos and taunts, after it has housed the whole range of human emotions, from ecstasy to scorn to despair, that touch the lives of people who live in a sports-mad city like Detroit." Wow. So, so that's his. That is so evocative. That's his first that is, sighting of t- Tiger Stadium. That is beautifully, <laughs> thank you, beautifully done. Thanks. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, that just takes me right back there, having been to so many games, and I just uh, still have such a nostalgic feel whenever I uh, drive by Michigan and Trumbull. Take take us further into the plot of your new book. What else, without giving away too many trade secrets here? Okay. What are some well, of the at things the, that happen. The main thing to, to to know is that on that day at Tiger Stadium, Willie bumps into a couple of black guys up in the bleachers, a, a criminal lawyer and an auto worker, and the and the lawyer announces that uh, a client of his has been hauled in for questioning in one of two unsolved murders from the previous summer's riot. This is like a punch to the Willie's gut. And the reader instantly realizes that he was somehow involved in the other unsolved murder, the 43rd and final unsolved murder from the riot. 
and, and and so he's very much on edge, and the reader won't find out until the very end of the book exactly how he was involved in that killing. Now, a white cop named Frank Doyle, an Irishman, U of D graduate, is on the case because he grew up in the east side of town, and the 43rd murder victim was a woman named Helen Hull, who ran a market, the corner market, the Greenleaf Market, in Jefferson Chalmers' neighborhood, where he used to steal Bazooka Joe bubblegum when he was a kid, and uh, she was the 43rd victim. And Doyle is trying with all his might to solve that murder, and he thinks Willie might be his man. So it's a cat and mouse game that'll that'll be revealed at the very end of the novel. I'm not going to give it away. I want people to buy it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Bill, tell us more about your background. How did you become uh, a writer? When did it? When did you know that this was the field that that you were going to choose? I guess I figured that out when I was probably about 10 years old. My father, as I'd mentioned, was a newspaper reporter at the Washington Post, and when we were kids up in the attic, he had a Footlocker full of old yellow newspaper clippings from the Washington Post. And it said there were all these articles by Richard Morris. That was my father. And one day I went to him and I said, you know, Pop, what's all this? I mean, your name's on these newspapers. He says, I wrote all those stories. And so from an early age, that was something I wanted to emulate. And my father was a fine writer and editor. And I knew quite early on that I wanted to do this. And then uh, I got out of school and started working on newspapers and started writing novels and been doing it ever since. And it's, you know, it took me 20 years to publish my first one. This book was 17 years in the works before I finally got it published. This current book? Yes. uh, Wow. I started writing this back in 1996 and I sold it in 2013. So it went through, uh, I'll tell you, Martin, uh, Motor City Burning went through, uh, I'm going to say, Four titles, uh, four agents, uh, five drafts, and probably 50 rejections before it finally got uh, purchased by Pegasus Books. And I think they've made a beautiful book. It's a a really handsome book, and I'm I'm totally thrilled that it's out there now. I thought that the music industry was a tough industry, a tough business. My goodness. What what kept you going all of those years? A lot of people were just thrown in the towel and started another project. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I think it's mule-headedness more than anything else. But I I tell you, one thing that that got this book to life was I came back to I'm living in New York City now, and I was assigned uh, to write some stories for the New York Times back in 2012. Uh, And the Tigers were in the world's uh, in the in the the ALCS, the championship against the Yankees, and they swept the Yankees that year. And so I was back in Detroit and talking to a lot of people, including a great guy named Lamar Webb, a beer vendor at Comerica Park. And I got to talking with people in Detroit, and I thought, you know, this city is something is happening in Detroit right now. It's, there's a, it's got a chance. There's a new vibe, a new life to this city. Uh, I'm going to go dig that book out of the drawer. I'd been sitting in there for several years, just dead as a doornail. I dug it out, rewrote it, found a new agent, and bang, she sold it. And here it is. Uh, it came out in July of 2014, just about a month ago, and I'm out on the road trying to sell it. <laughs> here I am. Tell me, um, I, I do some freelance writing myself, do some uh, music writing for the most part for the Detroit Free Press, pretty basic stuff, questions and answer, you know, types of articles for the paper. I just, I always find it so such a mysterious and beautiful thing to read a novel, something that someone devotes 200 or 300 pages to. How do you do that? When you start this, do you know where this plot is going? Do you know where, from A to B to C as you sit down? Or How, how, does, this de- how no, does this develop? Actually, you know, I think Flannery O'Connor said it best. She says she writes stories in order to find out how they're going to end. You know, <laughs> And I, I, I kind of feel that way, too. I, I had no idea how this was going to end. In fact, I, I, I changed the ending three times before I was happy with 
exactly who pulled the trigger that night and killed Helen Hull. So the process of writing is a process of discovery for me, and I think for probably for most writers. And uh, I, I knew that I, I had the vague idea of what I wanted to do with this story. I knew that I wanted to have a, a young black burnout former civil rights activist from the South in Detroit. I knew I wanted to have a white Irish cop chasing him. I knew I wanted to have that pivotal 43rd murder be the linchpin for the story. But how it was going to play out, I didn't know. And so that's what I discovered in the process of writing it. And it's not like novels get written all in one day. It's like a big jar, and you fill it with stones. You drop one in a day. And after a couple of years or five years or 10 years, you got yourself a book. Yeah, I'm curious, too, during the, the, this pretty lengthy time period, take us, what would be a typical day? Are you the type of writer where, all right, from noon to five or nine to five, I'm going to sit down, even if nothing happens, I'm sitting down at the computer or with uh, the typewriter or pen and paper? What, what, what's yeah. the process? Well, I tell you, this one, I, I quit my last day job right when I started writing this book. I was a newspaper reporter down in North Carolina. And I'd sold my second book, and I had some money, and I said, I'm just going to devote myself to writing, which I've been doing ever since. I've stayed alive freelancing ever since then and writing these novels on the side. Basically, I get up in the morning about 8 o'clock, make coffee, go sit in a room, close the door, and stay there till about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon trying to write all day. And that's I do that every day. Wow. <laughs> some people wow. would think that's a monastic, horrible life. I think it's heaven. So. Oh, that sounds great to me. Yeah. I mean, if that's what you love to do, that's not work. You right, know? right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and or, or, what, what, what makes the ideas flow? Are some days everything comes together and other days you, you oh, yeah. don't write anything for oh, absolutely. nine hours and yeah, just yeah. look out the window? And, yeah, you know? it's, no, no, no. I, it, the, the words get written every day. Okay. But it's... Uh, you know, it's it's work. It's a job. My father it was full of aphorisms, and he said, oh, so you want to be a writer? When I was in high school, I, said, I told him I wanted to uh, study English and become a writer. He says, oh, you want to be a writer? He says, you know how you do it? I said, no, how? He says, you put your chair seat in, you, you put your pants seat in the chair seat. In other words, you sit there in front of your typewriter or with your pen for eight hours a day, and you're going to be a writer. That's the way you do it. And it's sweat and but that's how it's done. It's not magic. You have to sit there and sweat it out. And that's uh, my father taught me that when I was quite young, and he was right. That's that's the way I've lived since. Bill, I'd love it. Love for you to read another passage from your new book. Would you mind reading another little passage from Motor City Burning? No, I guess I could do that. All Let's right. see here. Let me think. I got a. Uh, how about if I keep going? Um, where where he's uh, he climbs up. Uh, he's. I just read you that piece where he is arriving at the stadium. Yes. He's climbing up, and here's what he finds when he gets to the top. I don't know if you've ever climbed those switchbacks to the upper deck. In, oh, in Tiger. many times. Yeah, that's yes. good. It's good cardio. He was winded when he reached the upper deck. Pausing to catch his breath, he told himself winter was over and he needed to get back out on the basketball court. He noticed something on the concession stand menus called Red Hots. I'm sure you remember those. And the cryptic words, crush all cups, stenciled on the walls at regular intervals. He had entered a house of mysteries and secret codes. The bleachers were reached by long catwalks suspended by cables from riveted iron girders. Looking down gave him a mild sense of vertigo, so he lifted his eyes to the rectangle of blue sky before him. He saw seagulls, and then he stepped into the sunshine. Arrayed before him was the most beautiful room he'd ever seen. It was painted green, this irregular open-air room, its upper deck seats sheltered by a tar paper roof, the field a luxuriously cross-hatched emerald carpet. The infield dirt was tinged with something black. Coal dust? The bases glowed like sugar cubes. 
He climbed toward the big black scoreboard at the top of the bleachers, toward the huge AC spark plug shooting through a ring of fire. From up there, he could see the spires of downtown, but he turned his back on the skyline and studied this lovely open-air room. The longer he gazed out at the park, the smaller it seemed to become. It was hard to believe the place could hold upwards of 50,000 people. It was so, so intimate. And that's how I remember Tiger Stadium. It was a, an intimate big room where you, yeah. the world went away when you were in that place because it was all walled out and you just didn't think about anything but what you were doing when you were in that park. Your words just put me right back there. I had my eyes closed when you're reading that segment, Bill. How evocative, how beautifully, beautifully done. Before we let you run, what are your thoughts about the future of Detroit? You say you think there's a glimmer of hope. I've never seen the, the, so much written about the city and all the trauma and all the many good things that are happening in Detroit over the last few years. It, it, it is just uh, incredible how much it is in the national news. What do you think the future of Detroit holds? Well, I don't know, but I, I tell you, um, i got a friend in New York, a Detroit guy named Mark Benelli. You may have heard of Mark. Oh, yeah. yeah. He wrote a great book called Detroit City is the Place to to be. I love it. Read it. It's fantastic. Yes. And, and Mark Mark said, you know, uh, he's not a real optimistic, rosy, uh, rose-tinted glasses kind of a guy. But the, the theme of his book was, uh, despite all the things that have happened, maybe Detroit's got a chance right now. And I think it, maybe it does. I, for the first time in years, I, I sense things. I see things. I talk to people. I see people coming back to town. Um, I did some stories for Popular Mechanics a couple of years ago and uh, interviewed people like this wonderful uh, lady, uh, McFadden, what was Cynthia McFadden. She went to Howard. She went to Renaissance High here, went off to Howard in Washington and came back to start a business of making clothes for women of uh, graduates of traditionally black colleges. She's in Midtown. She's got a thriving business. And she said, you know. I felt like I owed something to, to the D. So she came home, and I heard so many stories like that. And there's so much, uh, you know, so much action right now in Detroit. And I, I just am hoping, I'm hoping that the city pulls it off. I, I think it might.